Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 36, 2 Kings chapter 23. Second Kings chapter 23. This is one of those chapters in the Bible that is so chock full of historical information and divine principles and applications for our lives. It's going to take a while to untangle it and address it all. I think the time that we spend here is going to be well worth it. Now the chapter opens with an impressive ceremony at the temple in Jerusalem. It's instigated by King Josiah, which no doubt was meant that this is patterned after the ones he had only recently heard about when the rediscovered Torah scroll was read to him. The first ceremonial convocation was held at Mount Sinai when the Torah of God was first received by Moses. Then another one later in the mountains of Moab as Moses prepared to turn Israel over to Joshua who was then going to lead the Hebrews across the Jordan into the Promised Land. Shortly thereafter that, at Gilgal, where a circumcision ceremony was held. Then later still, an elaborate ceremony split between Mounts Ebal and Gerzim in Canaan. And that's where the curses and the blessings of the Law of Moses were read to all Israel. Now in each one of these, the original covenant was given to, Mo, uh, to Moses, as, as it was given to Moses, was either ratified by a new generation, or it was rededicated by Israelites who were in need of being reminded just who their great God was, and what it is he requires of his people. However, being present at a lavish and a highly emotionally charged religious ceremony, even mouthing agreement in unison with the leader and one's peers who are present, doesn't necessarily indicate the worshiper's actual inner spiritual condition. The sad reality was that while King Yoshiao, Josiah, was doing all he reasonably could, to drive his people back to the Lord, even knowing Hulda's prophecy that Judah was doomed. This nationwide revival movement was fueled by his zeal, not theirs. Now last week, we read Jeremiah chapter 2 that gave us God's perspective of, of the true spiritual condition of the people of Judah it was stunningly awful, to say the least. And, and, and hopefully the sum of what we have learned in our study of the two books of Kings leads us to understand that a spiritual decline is a slow process. It advances in seemingly harmless baby steps that none but the most spiritually aware even notice. In but a relatively few pages of Holy Scripture, we have journeyed from the high highs of the glory days of faithful King David to the low lows 
of the idolatrous king Manasseh. So it is easy to lose sight that in most Bibles, a mere 60 pages leads us through three centuries of Israel's history. To put that in perspective in American history terms, that's the amount of time since the birth of Benjamin Franklin until today. It's the amount of time that begins 75 years before the Revolutionary War until today. Imagine if all that history was condensed into about 60 typewritten pages. How precious little of what went on can actually be contained in it. Thus, in addition to it being self-evident that in the Bible we get little but the Cliff Notes version of all that transpired in Judah and Israel during that time, we can also get this skewed impression of changes within Israelite society that happened rapidly or even overnight when in fact they were from decades to hundreds of years in the making and thus almost imperceptible by those who were living in those times. So in the ceremony that takes place in the first three verses of 2 Kings chapter 23 we need to try to mentally picture that when the scroll of the law of Moses was read to everyone in attendance at this great convocation of rededication, the actual content of the Torah was almost unknown to them. These divine words that they heard felt new. It felt very different and no no doubt not very comfortable from all that they had been believing, all that they had been practicing and observing for their entire lives. Yet at the same time, these folks were convinced that they knew their God, Yehovah, well. They knew His laws and commandments well and they could readily discern His will. But to dispute that commonly held, although mistaken, belief, the prophet Jeremiah says that not even the foremost religious authorities of Judah who purported to teach the Torah to the people actually knew God. They didn't even seek out His word. The common prophets of the time, of which there were hundreds, claimed by virtue of having attended and graduated from one of the, uh, the several prophets' academies of that era, that they had been anointed by God. But at the same time, they also prophesied in the name of Baal. And for some strange reason, a goodly portion of Judah, perhaps the majority, didn't seem to find fault with that notion. They didn't even question it. We read in Jeremiah 2.8, the Kohanim, the priests, they didn't ask, where is Adonai? Those who deal with the Torah did not know me. The people's shepherds rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and they went after things of no value. How could this happen? How could this happen? 
See, it took a very long time. Hundreds of years. Over a dozen very bad kings. A priesthood that at first saw their supreme status as this, as God's set-apart group, as a high calling. A calling that demanded their absolute purity, their absolute devotion to God. But in time, they came to see it as a profession. A profession that gained them status and popularity and a pretty good living. Prophets. Well, they enjoyed their celebrity and the attentive ears of the people much more than they did their relationship with the Lord. A citizenry that was content to merely do and believe whatever seemed convenient and customary and currently in vogue. And what happened when an occasional true prophet of God like Elijah or Isaiah was sent to try to bring the people back to their senses when they tried to bring God's true oracle of correction to the leadership and to the public at large and they tried to reintroduce God's true word, they were run out of town. They were called killjoys who only sought to bash the beloved institutional Hebrew religion. They were berated, they were shunned, they were beaten up Some of them were murdered. If you still have trouble accepting that history is a predictably repetitive pattern or that it is generally circular in its nature, then what I just told you might be kind of interesting, but it has no connection to you or to the world today or to our collective future. However, if you can see that because God never changes, then the divine principles and systems He puts into place never changes. Then it also becomes self-evident that the historical patterns never change. They just repeat, but in new and different contexts and circumstances. Thus, here we are today in the 21st century, Most of who are listening, claiming faith in the God of Israel, His Son Yeshua, and much of what was happening during Josiah's time seems to be repeating itself within the institutional church and within Judaism. And yet, it's vehemently denied, especially by the leadership. Jeremiah 2, 20-25 For long ago I broke your yoke. When I snapped your chains, you said, I won't sin. Yet on every high hill and under every green tree, you sprawled and prostituted yourself. But I planted you as a choice vine, a seed fully tested and true. How did you degenerate into a wild vine for me. Even if you scrub yourself with soda and plenty of soap, the stain of your guilt is still there before me, says Adonai Elohim. How can you say, I'm not defiled, I haven't pursued the bales? Look at your conduct. Understand what you've done. You're a restive young female camel running here, running there, wild, accustomed to the desert, sniffing in the wind and her lust who can control her when she's in heat. Males seeking her 
don't have to weary themselves, for at mating season they'll find her. Stop before your shoes wear out. Your throat is dry from thirst. But you say, no, it's hopeless. I love these strangers. I'm going after them. See, too many who are leaders and teachers of God's Word barely know it, if at all. Rather, they fall back on the writings of their religious leaders, books of doctrines and traditions, and say that these are the same as the Word of God. Or at least, these are all the things we really need to know to defend and uphold our denominational creeds. Too many people who have had their yokes and chains of slavery to sin broken for them by their faith in Messiah loudly proclaim, I won't sin anymore. Well, they quickly embrace the things that God says no to in His Word. And when God puts someone in our life to correct us and take us back to His Word and to point out that we are obligated to do what it says and they ask us to let go of these wrong things that have become comfortable, that have become so familiar to us and to our families and to our neighbors. In the end, much too often we say, no, I love these strange things. So I'm going to continue to go after them. Thus, even though King Josiah had a pure heart that was constantly commended by God, and he did exactly what he should have done in calling for a holy convocation at the temple and having the Torah read to the people verbatim, and he asked that the people join with him in saying Amen to the covenant of Moses, the reality is, that most of the people's hearts were far from God and they simply went along to get along. No pilgrimage, no celebration, no declaration from our lips changes a heart. The journey begins from the inside. Then it moves outward only if it's a true journey of spiritual connection with the God of Israel. Let's begin reading today at verse 4 of 2 Kings 23. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 430. Starting in verse 4. Then the king ordered Hilkiah, the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest the priests of the second rank and the doorkeepers to remove from the sanctuary of Adonai all the articles that had been made for Baal, for the Asherah, for the entire army of heaven, and he burned them up outside of Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He deposed the idolatrous priests of the kings of Judah. He deposed the idolatrous priests that the kings of Judah had ordained to offer on the high places by the cities of Judah and in the places surrounding Jerusalem. He deposed those who offered to Baal, <clears throat> to the sun, the moon, and the constellations, and the whole army of heaven. He took the Asherah from the house of Adonai 
to the Wadi Kadron outside Jerusalem and he burned it in Wadi Kadron, stamped the ashes to powder, threw the powder onto the burial ground for the common people. He smashed the houses of the cult prostitutes that were in the house of Adonai, where the women also wore garments for the Asherah. He removed the priests from the cities of Judah and then from Geba to Beersheba. He desecrated the high places where the priests had been making offerings. He smashed the high places of the gates that were at the entrance to the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city on the left as one enters the city. But although the priests who had been at the high places did not come up to the altar of Adonai in Jerusalem, nevertheless they did share matzah with their kinsmen. He desecrated the Tophet fire pit in the Ben-Hinnom Valley so that no one could cause his son or daughter to pass through the fire as a sacrifice to Molech. He confiscated the horses which the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entrance to the house of Adonai near the room of the officer Natan Melech in the side courtyard and he burned up the chariots of the sun. The kings smashed the altars on the roof of the upper room of Ahaz which the kings of Judah had made and the altars of Manasseh uh, the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courtyards of the house of Adonai. He broke them into pieces and threw the rubble into the Wadi Kedron. The king desecrated the high places facing Jerusalem south of the Mount of Destruction, which Shlomo, Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonites, Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. He smashed the standing stones, chopped down the sacred poles, covered their remains with human bones. He smashed the altar that was at Bethel in the high place made by Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who caused Israel to sin. Yes, he smashed that altar in the high place. He burned the high place, stamped the ashes to powder and burned it up. Then as Yoshiao was turning around, he noticed the burial caves that were there on the mountain. So he sent and had the bones taken out of the burial caves and burned them on the altar, thus desecrating it, in keeping with the word of Adonai which the man of God had proclaimed, foretelling that these things would happen. Then he asked, This monument here that I'm looking at, what is it? And the men of the city told him, It marks the burial cave of the man of God who came from Judah and foretold the very things you have done to the altar of Bethel. And he replied, Let him be. No one is to move his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed along with the bones of the prophet who had come from Shomron, Samaria. Yoshiao, Josiah, also removed all the shrines of the high places in the cities of Shomron, which the kings of Israel had made in order to provoke Adonai to anger and treated them the same as in Bedel. He put to death all the priests of those high places on the altars there, burned the human bones on them. Finally, he returned to Jerusalem. The king issued this order to all of the people. Observe Pesach, Passover, to Adonai your God as written in this scroll of the covenant. For Pesach had not been so observed since the days when the judges ruled Israel. Not during the times of any of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was observed to Adonai in Jerusalem. Josiah got rid of the mediums and of the people using spirit guides as well as all the household idols 
uh, household gods, the idols, all the disgusting things spotted anywhere in Judah and Jerusalem. He did this in an order to establish the words of the Torah written in the scroll that Hilkiah the priest had found in the house of Adonai. No previous king was like him because he turned to Adonai with all of his heart, with all of his being, with all of his power in accordance with all the Torah of Moses. Nor did any king like him arise afterwards. Nevertheless, Adonai did not turn away from his fiercely raging, furious anger that burned against Judah because of all the things Manasseh had done to provoke him. Adonai said, just as I removed Israel, I will also remove Judah from out of my sight. I will reject this city, which I chose, Jerusalem, and the house concerning which I said my name will be there. Other activities of Yoshiao, all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. And during his time, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up toward the Euphrates River to attack the king of Asher. King Yoshiao went out to oppose him, but at Megiddo, Pharaoh spotted Josiah and he killed him. His servants carried his dead body from Megiddo to Jerusalem in a chariot, buried him in his own tomb. The people of the land took Jehoiachaz, the son of Yoshiao, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Jehoiachaz was 23 years old when he began his reign and he ruled for three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Yermiao, Jeremiah, from Libna. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, following the example of everything his ancestors had done. Pharaoh Nico imprisoned him in Riblah in the land of Hamath, so that he would not be able to rule in Jerusalem. He also imposed a penalty on the land of three and one quarter tons of silver, 66 pounds of gold. And then Pharaoh Nico made Eliakim the son of Josiah, king in place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Jehoiachim. He also carried Jehoiachaz off to Egypt, where he died. Jehoiachim remitted the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but in order to pay the money Pharaoh demanded, he had to levy a tax on the land. He taxed the people of the land, each according to his means, to pay the silver and gold to Pharaoh Nego. Jehoiachim was 25 years old when he began his reign and he ruled for 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zevedah, the daughter of Pediah from Rumah. He did what was evil from the perspective of Adonai following the example of everything his ancestors had done. <clears throat> now recall that six years earlier from the time that we're reading about right now King Josiah had ordered a similar program of removing and destroying idols but somehow many of them had reappeared we get no explanation for this but then again think about how much can happen in a mere six years as an illustration the devastation and fear caused by the financial meltdown of 2008 is already becoming a distant memory. And how 
the world wisely reacted to it with enormous and almost overnight changes in our behavior that involve paying off and swearing off debt, downsizing homes and cars, living more within our means, and increasing savings. But it's not lasting. After only five years from that catastrophe, many have returned to running up balances on their credit cards, saving next to nothing, making uneducated and risky investments to get relatively little more return, and then living like there's no tomorrow. Did something in this world's economies fundamentally change for the better in that time frame that would cause us to actually reverse direction back to our frivolous and foolish ways of the near past? Not that I've noticed. Our fearful emotions simply ran their course. Our will to do what was right and wise, no matter how difficult, began to diminish. And the way we truly think at our core is surfacing again to cause our destructive behavior to return to what has become instinctive and usual. That was the case with Judah and their rather quick return to idolatry and the return of the idols after Josiah's first attempt at ridding his kingdom of it. Well, the king instructed the high priest and those of the level of priests immediately below him, called the second order, along with the gatekeepers, these would be Levite non-priests, to do the work of removing from the temple grounds the Baal idols, the Asherah poles, all the paraphernalia associated with worshipping the sun and the moon and the stars. But what's perplexing is not that these particular folks would have been the ones ordered to perform the task of removing all these items. I mean, the priests and the Levites were supposed to handle all matters associated with God's temple, but rather it is that these same priests and Levites must have permitted and participated in erecting these idols in the temple grounds in the first place. And the only reasonable explanation I can come up with is that these pagan items had become mixed in with standard everyday Hebrew worship practices of Jehovah and no one even thought of them in terms of being pagan or as idols or as wrong. See, the scholarly word for this anomaly is syncretism. It is the act of slowly, over time, borrowing rituals and practices and icons and symbols and observances from multiple religions to add to your own. Then these new ways become the standard and the accepted way. Only after an extended period of time is it even possible to look back and recognize what's happened. But by then it's invariably too late. A new normal has been created. And the adherents of the affected religion are now stubbornly attached to these new ways. Happy with them. They don't recognize them for what they are. And by way of application, just look to our current era. We find the same sort of process has occurred within our Christian faith over the centuries. Every now and then, some group or another of believers openly challenges 
these established and institutionalized traditions and customs. America was founded by a group that we call the Puritans, who openly challenged the syncretism of Roman-based Christianity. They were persecuted for it, so they fled Europe for the New World. Today, the same questioning of how so many pagan traditions crept into our Christian faith observances and what to do about it. Well, that's emerged again. And of course, it's being reacted to by the institutional church in the same way as they did with the Puritans. Suspicion, anger, and accusations of heresy. So I have little doubt that the offending cult items that were removed by the priests and the Levites from the temple grounds were only the result of having God's Torah actually presented to them at the demand of King Josiah. And then the leadership requiring them to pay attention to it, to actually obey it, to follow the Torah's terms and conditions. Even so, the results... They were just primarily outward. And the people and the priesthood quickly reverted when some time passed and the pressures to obey the Torah relaxed. And then especially upon King Josiah's death. We are told next that the combustible items were taken down into the Nachal Kidron and burned up to ashes. Anyone who's gone to Israel has been to Jerusalem. And you have seen the Nahal Kidron, what today is called the Kidron Valley. This is a valley gorge that runs along the eastern wall of the Temple Mount, the one that separates it from the Mount of Olives. Now, Nahal means brook or stream. Our complete Jewish Bible says wadi. That's not correct. A wadi is a mostly dry riverbed that only springs to life occasionally. But in Josiah's day, the Kidron was a constantly running stream of water, which is why so much religious ritual was performed down there. Then the ashes of these idols were collected. They were hauled off to Bethel. Why Bethel? Because this was the seat of the apostate form of the Hebrew religion that King Jeroboam had created for the ten northern tribes, which incorporated the use of those golden calves as an image of the God of Israel. It had been prophesied that the altars Jeroboam once used would be defiled. Verse 5 says that Yoshiao deposed the idolatrous priests that the kings had appointed to burn offerings at the high places of Judah. These were probably not Levite priests, although most of them were probably Levites. See, only certain clans of Levites were authorized to be priests, while the others were to be the temple workers. The Hebrew word used is kemarim. Hebrew priests is kohanim, and kohanim refers to the priestly class. There is an interesting distinction made that the Kemarim, who made offerings at the Bamot, the high places of the cities of Judah, are different than some other Kemarim who made offerings to Baal and to other gods. My point is 
that during the era of the kings, almost always when we hear of Bamot, high places, these were actually altars built on mounds and hilltops that were dedicated to Yehovah. So we have a special group of priests who were likely weren't real priests at all, being officially authorized by the government of Judah, officially sanctioned by the Hebrew religious authorities to make offerings and on countless altars all around Judah, made in the name of God, even though God says only Levitical priests can make offerings to him and only at one place, the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. So neither group of Kemarim was God authorized. And then in contrast to this, there are other priests who serve the Baals, the heavenly hosts. Now, I hope you get the picture of this diverse, anything-goes, inclusive mindset of worship among the Hebrews and Judah as we approach their exile to Babylon. It was a made-up, makeshift faith that as far as anyone knew, that was what they were supposed to do because their leaders made it acceptable. And why did they think that everything was okay? Because they didn't know God's Word. They didn't know the Torah. They refused to take heed to the warnings of God's prophets. All faith, any faith, as long as it was done for the sake of the spiritual, that was generally okay. Anyway, one wanted to worship the God of Israel. It was okay. Want to add a little paganism on the side? No problem. It seems that this was all okay if you mostly worship the God of Israel. Or you did whatever you wanted to do by invoking God's name. And particularly if in your heart you see nothing particularly wrong in it. If all that's true, then presto, it's not pagan anymore. Isn't that cool? And the residents of Judah seem to dabble in just about all of it. We don't hear one syllable of protest or disagreement over it among the population, not from the temple leadership, let alone any kind of condemnation of such behavior or belief. Rather, just like in our day, even in our churches and synagogues, tolerance was the watchword. Since love is always admirable, then it doesn't matter what the nature of it is because Jesus preached love. Marriage among anyone of any sex is okay because God authorized marriage and He likens it to our relationship with Him. Oh, faith is good. It doesn't matter what your faith is in because Christ says it's important to have faith. Verse 6 reminds us that Manasseh had installed an Asherah in the house of Adonai, meaning the temple building itself. Can you imagine? The 
that was now removed. It was taken to the Kidron and it was burned up and its unclean ashes thrown into the graveyards. An unclean place. In verse 7, the list continues with the abominable things that were going on in the name of God. Cult prostitutes were operating in God's house. Women wove articles of clothing that were put onto the Asherah pole. See, cult prostitutes worked for the temple authority. In some cases, it was that ritual sex acts were performed before the Asherah pole. Now remember, the Asherah was the idol of Ashtoreth, the goddess of fertility. In other cases, girls were donated by their fathers to the temple to be prostitutes. Thus, whatever money was earned from their prostitution, the prophets supported the temple. The fathers felt they were doing something pious in giving up their daughters to the temple of God for this purpose. The men spent their money for legalized prostitutes at the holy temple so it wasn't looked down upon. And the money from the brothel went to the temple authorities. Everybody was happy. Such a deal. Some other group of priests, meaning priests to Jehovah, they were brought in from places outside of Jerusalem, from all over, where they had also been sacrificing at private altars. It's hard to make a distinction between these priests and those talked about back in verse 5, but apparently there, there was one. My own speculation is that the priests of verse 5 were, were common Levites, not of the priestly clans, even though they were assigned the duty of being priests to the mini Bamot, to Jehovah. And whereas in verse 5, Josiah had the altars of those priests destroyed, the altars of the priests of verse 8 weren't destroyed. They were just defiled. Likely these priests were actually Levite priests from the priestly clans, so they were at least properly authorized to be priests. So what we have is essentially Levites practicing varying degrees of idolatry. Although I think these degrees are purely man-made and philosophical, so at least they were treated differently. Now interestingly, what we find is that although Josiah influenced the behavior of this last group of priests to stop what they were doing, and then they were brought into Jerusalem to only do their ritual service for Jehovah there, because of their previous idolatry, even though it was considered idolatry of a lesser degree, they were not allowed to participate in the typical priestly functions such as sacrificing at the altar of the burnt offering in the temple. Now there were also other restrictions in that they were not allowed to partake of the holy food given for holy sacrificial offerings that because of its holy designation had to be eaten by the priests only at the temple building. They couldn't take this particular food home with them, in other words. But these reformed priests would be allowed to eat unleavened bread at such occasions so as not to be completely isolated from their priestly brethren. And let me stress, these various distinctions and assignments and decisions and consequences that are all being revealed here are not said to be God's instructions. 
They're just what Josiah and his royal court decided upon. Thus, we should take them as merely a statement of historical fact, not necessarily as a prescription for something we ought to do. And then verse 10 explains that the Tophet of the Ben-Hinnom Valley was desecrated. Now today, we call this the Gehenna Valley, or just Gehenna, or in evangelical Christianity, Gehenna, for short. The Tophet was the formal name for the pagan shrine where children were brought to be passed through the fire, sacrificed to Molech. The rabbis say that the word Tophet is a word for drum. Because as each child was offered, drums were beaten in an increasing frenzy. Note that the Tophet wasn't destroyed. But in some unnamed way it was defiled. It was made ritually unsuitable for use. Why wasn't such an abominable thing destroyed? We don't know. But likely there were very heavy political pressures that prevented it. We know from extra biblical records that this same shrine was reinstituted and active at the time of Christ. Verse 11 says, King Josiah confiscated the horses that were used for rituals to the sun god and also had the chariots that were part of the ritual destroyed and burned. Next to the altars on the roof of the upper room of some kind of tower that King Ahaz had made, they were destroyed as well as some of Manesha's idolatrous handiwork. And still with all of this there was more other high places and idols located on what is called the Mount of Destruction were desecrated. And we are given the sad reminder that these high places had been originally built by King Solomon, David's son, for the purpose of worshipping the Moabite god Kamosh and the Ammonite god Milcom. And in the process, whatever shrines and pillars were there, King Josiah smashed them and then had them covered with human remains as the means of defilement. See, the Mount of Destruction is actually a play on words of the Mount of Olives. Mount of Destruction is in Hebrew, Har Hamashit. Mount of Olives, that literally ought to be translated as Mount of Ointment is Har Hamashah. So the idea is that the presence of these idols has turned the Mount of Ointment, a healing place, into a Mount of Destruction, an unclean and desolate place. What we have to this point is what King Josiah did with all of the inappropriate worship places and cult articles and shrines in Judah and in Jerusalem. What comes next is what he did in the former territory of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now in order for us to get a more complete picture of what is happening, please turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. We're just going to read about four or five verses. 
starting at verse 29. We're going to read through 33. That would be on page 1220 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Second Chronicles 34, starting at verse 29. Then the king summoned and assembled all the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of Adonai with all the men of Judah, those living in Jerusalem, the Kohanim, the priests, the Levites, all of the people, both great and small, and he read in their hearing everything written in the scroll of the covenant that had been found in the house of Adonai. The king stood in his place and he made a covenant in the presence of Adonai to live following Adonai, obeying his mitzvot, his commandments, his instructions and laws wholeheartedly with all of his being so as to perform the words of the covenant written in the scroll. Then after he had all the people in Jerusalem and Benjamin stand in affirmation of it, the inhabitants of Jerusalem acted in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. Yoshiao, Josiah, removed all the abominable idols from all the territories belonging to the people of Israel. And he made everyone in Israel serve Adonai, their God. Throughout his lifetime, they did not stop following Adonai, the God of their ancestors. Now this, of course is taking us back just a little bit to this big ceremony at the temple grounds. My purpose in this is that I want you to notice in verse 32 where it says that Josiah had all the people where? In Jerusalem and Benjamin stand in affirmation of the covenant rededication. What we see is that as a is that, uh, As of this time, Benjamin was now fully affiliated with Judah and considered part of Judah. So the people who were at this covenant ceremony were strictly Judahites. But that designation now included the tribe of Benjamin. But then, verse 33 makes the brief comment that Yoshiao also removed all the idols from the territories belonging to the people of Israel, meaning the ten northern tribes who were now in exile to Assyria. This cements the historical reality that at this point, Assyria had lost its ability to control this region that they had not so long ago conquered. And this opened the door for Josiah now to extend his reach up to the north. Now here's the thought I want to close with as a basis for what we're going to study next time. King Josiah decided that even though the ten tribes had been exiled to Assyria and elsewhere, there were some small remnants of those ten tribes still living in the former northern kingdom, but those remaining Israelites had no king, no priesthood, and in a sense, no religion. So since that region was still part of the promised land as far as he was concerned, King Josiah decided that it was only proper that he should be their king too. And in the next few verses, we're going to see how he extended his influence and the Torah Reformation movement into the northern tribal territories, no doubt thinking to emulate kings David and Solomon.
by making all 12 tribal districts into one unified kingdom of God again. He never succeeded beyond destroying a few idols and altars.